the purpose of Wealth Talk is to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain you on the subject of building your wealth. Wealth Builders recommends you should always take independent financial, tax, or legal advice before making any decisions around your finances. Welcome to episode 224 of Wealth Talk. My name is Christian Rodwell, the Membership Director for Wealth Builders, joined today by our founder, Mr. Kevin Whelan. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Good to be with you again, Chris. You put your teeth in. Is that what you got for Christmas? I've been on the sherry. Been on the mince pies. They're a bit strong. That <laughs> somebody got you some Fortnum and Mason mince pies. They did. And hopefully Which that are, gentleman is listening. So laced with brandy, I <laughs> to believe. Which is no wonder you're, you're sounding a little bit skew today, but... I assume it isn't that you just got your words wrong. Exactly. Well, with you know, it's been a long year, and with this is our final podcast episode of 2023. So um, you know, it's going to be our fifth anniversary next year, Kevin. And we're absolutely delighted to kick off another year with more great guests coming. And today we've got a fantastic guest, which is John Lamerton. And continuing with our family's theme, of course, we've been focusing a lot on wealth for the entire family since the launch of Wealth Builds for Families back in October. And I've got some really good things which we've discussed with John today. Yeah, fascinating to hear from John. Very poignant, given the very special kind of needs he's talking about for, for his family from an educational point of view and very transparent and very humbling to, to hear that he's putting a lot of his own and his wife's time, energy, and I guess money into uh, what they're doing. And uh, I think some inspiring lessons that he's sharing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and John will talk about this himself, but his two children, Jack and Harry, both have special education needs. And therefore, we'll touch on this topic of homeschooling, which is something that's actually, you know, really on the increase in the UK, Kevin. I had a look and research online shows there's around about 86,000 children that are currently being homeschooled in the UK at the moment. Yeah, so whatever language you use, homeschooling, home education, I think it's certainly true to say that the schooling system isn't necessarily serving every child to the best of their outcomes. So John will talk about that. We'll probably have a chance to talk about that as well, in particular, to try and encourage financial literacy onto the curriculum. But I was talking to one of our clients about that who had something to say very negatively about that. So, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to have a little bit of a debrief, but uh, always interesting to get the perspectives of others. I do enjoy you getting into the detail of their thoughts and you know, their their activities around their family. It's much different, isn't it, to talking about business? Yeah, it definitely is. It opens up a whole new avenue inside the conversation. So let's not wait around. Let's head on over to our conversation today with John Lamerton. John, welcome back to Wealth Talk today. How are you? Very good, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Well, having me back, I should say. I know. Yep. Back in episode 175, uh, you featured. And at uh, that time, we were talking about, can you have a lifestyle business and create wealth? Ah, that's right. Yes. What's your answer to that one, John? Absolutely. I, did I see a report in the BBC today that Britons are more likely to choose work-life balance than anyone else in Europe? Well, there you go. We're in the right business then. There you go. Trendsetter. Yeah. For those that perhaps didn't catch that episode, John, what's a bit of the backstory on yourself and, and how did you get into this? So, yeah, I was a, a former civil servant and I started my own business 23 years ago now. Internet marketing business. 
the only problem was I knew nothing about the internet, nothing about marketing, and I'd never run a business before. Other than that, what could be easier? <laughs> so I self-taught myself everything I needed to know to run that business purely to escape the day job from hell. Having done that, I then discovered I was very good at this and ended up making lots of money and then just chased more money and more money and more money. And before you know it, I've got my sights set on usurping Lord Sugar as host of The Apprentice. I want a skyscraper with my name on the side and a yacht that I can fit a helicopter on the back and all that kind of stuff that I didn't really want until I had kids. And then the minute I had kids, I had uh, Jack, my oldest, now 14. He was a three-month-old baby, and I was sat in an MLT centre reading Alan Sugar's autobiography, What You See Is What You Get. Right, this is what I need to do. I'm going to reverse engineer Lord Sugar's pathway. I'm creating the next Amstrad here. And I saw this one line. I never really saw my kids much when they were growing up. And just in that moment, I was like, ah, that's not what I want. I was like a sledgehammer to the heart. I was like, no, I want to just be there for these kids when they grow up. I don't need the helicopter. I don't need a yacht. I just need to be there for these kids and actually enjoy my life. How relevant to our conversation today. And, and that was a, obviously a massive turning point for you, John. And now mm. obviously you're an advocate of really designing a business around the lifestyle that you want, right? And Absolutely. you've helped hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, through your masterminds. And, and now onto your fourth book, I, I, I noticed there, John. So tell it us is, quickly yeah. about that one. Absolutely. So The False Exit is uh, my latest book, came out in July. Yeah, book number four. And it is this idea of exiting the day-to-day running of your business, but still owning the asset. It's something I discovered by accident. I tried selling my business. At one point, I thought I was going to get a £2 million exit. Only like Chris Tarrant to whip away that check. The broker said, no, we don't want to give you that. I tried putting a management team in place who decimated the business and just killed the profits. I tried doing nothing only to find that I just buried my head in the sand and ended up never, nearly having a nervous breakdown. And then eventually, Jason, my business partner, and I decided we just, we'll just we just systemize it. We'll put the right people in place. We'll put some procedures. We'll structure the business so that it could run without us. It won't be as good as if we're in it. But hey, if we sold our business, time we pay the tax man, his chunk of change, and time we actually find a new revenue stream, we'd rather own the assets. So it's this idea of not killing a golden goose, but turning your golden goose into a golden egg laying machine that works without you. I Meaning you can nip off for a weekend, you can go to the kids' sports days, you can do school runs, or as I've just done this summer, you can go off on a three-week road trip around Spain with the family, not checking emails once. That was my dream. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? At the end of the day, I'm sure most of our listeners, certainly I know that our members, they don't want to be super rich. They don't want the Lamborghinis and the flashy houses. You know, maybe some do, and that's absolutely fine, but it's choice. It's freedom. Yeah. It's time. It's that quality time with family, which, you know, you're saying as well is what really is what it's all about for you. That escapes a lot of business owners. So we could definitely talk a lot about that, but. I want to focus in on you know how you've been passing on some of these lessons that you've been learning throughout your life and your career, John, to your children. And you mentioned Jack there, 14 years old. Um, tell us about the other members of your family, if you don't mind, please. Yeah, so Jack's 14. Uh, Harry is our youngest. She's 11. And she's just gone into secondary school now. So we've actually been homeschooling both kids. Sorry, my wife will be listening to this. Home educating, <laughs> she tells me. It's not homeschooling, apparently. So we've been home educating our kids. The school system was 
letting them down. It was failing them. They both got special education needs and they're both very, very bright children, but the system was failing them. And we made the decision originally just for one of them that we would homeschool for a year. Um, we decided eventually, and this, my wife's a teacher, so it was very, very difficult for her to reach this decision that the best place for our children was not the education system because that was a system that she spent 20, 25 years in. And we decided, yeah, we're going to homeschool these two. We're going we're gonna to customize the curriculum because when I think about my journey, and I did okay at school, I wasn't terrible, I wasn't tremendous, but I did okay at school. But I found school very, very difficult. The minute I left school, I almost felt, well, that's me done with learning. I don't need to learn anything else again. Finally, I can stop learning. And then eventually, as I went into business, I customized my curriculum and I chose what I learned. And you can, you know, for the viewers now, they'll see a shelf of books behind me. I've always got a book on the go. I've always got a podcast in my ear, uh, a seminar on the go, something in the diary with with a training course. But this idea that if you customize the curriculum, we can make it fit our children. We can teach them what they need to learn. Because I think if you've got a class of 30 kids, you pretty much go at the pace of the slowest kid. And if your child needs some attention, you've got one teacher and maybe a couple of TAs who can't give them the attention they need. And we've discovered, we've proven it now, we can teach them more in probably a quarter of the time. We could teach them more than they would learn full-time in school. But you need time to do that, right? So uh, if yes. you're a slave to a job and you're working all the hours, even commuting, that's just not going to be possible, right? So yeah. that was obviously a benefit of having designed your business to give you that time. And of course, your wife, Sarah, as well, I guess. How did you share a responsibility? And, and tell us what an average kind of day or week looked like as a homeschooler. Yeah, well, I mean, readers of my second book, Routine Machine, will not be surprised to learn that habits and routines were very, very much a part of this. So I had my set days, Mondays and Wednesdays. I did um, my little daddy home education, shall we say. Sarah did carry the bulk of it because she was obviously trained. She knows what she's doing when it comes to the education system. Now, when we first decided to homeschool, Sarah was in school. She was actually an employed teacher. I went through a little exercise with her where we worked out her actual hourly rate based on the nice headline salary she's got and how many hours she actually worked. She was on £8.52 an hour, I believe, which when I opened up Reed and showed her that she could get a junior management job at McDonald's earning £13 an hour, she was not too happy. So we crafted her business as well. So she created a tutoring business so that she could work part-time, earning the same amount of money that she did in employment. Again, crafting that business around the homeschool. So most of the tutoring work she does is between four and seven in the evenings, meaning she had the days free to homeschool our kids. She was able to combine other people into the same sessions as well. But it was this idea that Sarah would teach the more academic subjects. You know, despite I may be, I may have written four best-selling books, but I was not teaching English. Sarah would teach English, maths, geography, all the proper subjects. And then I would get out a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or I would open up a Tony Robbins video aimed at children, or I would get a Jocko Willink podcast on where he's talking to children. And I would just talk, I treated it as personal development. I was like, okay, what do these guys need to learn? We used to have a book, which was recommended by Tim Ferriss many, many years ago. I can't remember the exact title now, but it was 
uh, Book of Family Values. And it was a massive, massive tome. And every week, as a routine, the three of us would sit down and we'd choose our value of the week. And even now, I mean, that's probably five years ago we started doing that. Even now, I could say to Harry, my youngest, have you done your cleanliness routines? And she knows exactly what that means because we studied the virtue of cleanliness one week and it's stuck. And, you know, the, the virtue of honesty or the, the value of transparency. And it's just, yeah, being able to dive deep into how do we make these kids happy, confident, good humans? So did you make that decision on behalf of the children or with the children? It was with the children, yeah. We gave them both the opportunity and we said, look, this is an option. If you want to do this, you can do it. And Jack was all for it. He's like, yep, get me out of school. Absolutely. This would be great for me. Harry loved school. School was failing her in a different way. Uh, She's visually impaired. So she was really, really struggling with eyesight headaches, sickness. She fell and broke her arm on the last day of term in her first year at school because someone left the net out on the football field and so just let the kids run around. So yeah, she fell and broke her arm thanks to school. So she wanted to stay in school. She had a lot of friends in school, but she knew how school was physically affecting her. And so yeah, she decided, well, if Jack's doing it, perhaps I'll do it too. The door was always open though to return. If it didn't work out, both of them could have gone back into the school system. And I guess one of the comments uh, it could be aimed at, you're taking them away from that social environment and yeah. those, you know, learnings of dealing with, uh, you know, different characteristics and personalities. How did you manage that? So we discovered there's a very strong homeschooling community within Plymouth, and we made it a point of creating these social Sort of structures so every week they would go to there's a climbing wall that did a session let's say sarah did some sessions here so we'd have maybe four or five children would come to the house she would do a session harry would then take part in that session they did cubs they did brownies we made sure that social integration was a big part of homeschooling until the second year of homeschooling which was 2020 so we struggled a little bit with socialising then. You're, like you're ahead did. of the curve there, weren't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, we were using Zoom, we were homeschooling. We weren't washing our hands as much as we did in 2020. But other than that, we were on board. Yeah. And and I guess, you know, the other question is, how did the schools react? And, you know, is it a difficult process to say, that's it, we're pulling them out? And it's actually not as difficult as you would imagine. It's pretty much sending a letter in saying, this is what we're doing. There was an element, and we could see again the... I'm always keen to study incentives. What are the incentives for people's behavior? And when we said we were taking the kids out out of school, Harry was the one who we were really concerned about physically, and so it was physically affecting her. Jack was more mentally affected. And we said, we're going to take them both out. And the headmaster said to us, have you considered leaving Jack in and just taking Harry out? And we said, well, actually, it's Jack that we were really, really worried about because of the mental strain. And so oh, it's just that Jack's got his sats coming up next year and he's like top of the class for his sats, whereas Harry's not doing so well on her sats because of the visual impairment. She can't read as fast. She can't physically write. And I said, OK, so your sat scores are your priority. Our children's well-being doesn't come into this at all. The main thing you're worried about is what your test scores look like. And I think that's that's a lot of schools. Why do you think that schools still don't include 
lessons about finance, business, money in the curriculum. What, what do you think is the cause of that, John? I think, well, I go back to some words painted on my wall here from my first book, Big Ideas for Small Businesses. I talked about the five magic ingredients of success, goals, desire, knowledge, environment, and action. And I think what's the goal of financial education in school? It's to tick a box. It's to say, hey, we've done it. Uh, what's the desire to truly generate financial independence and financial education within the school system? Very, very low. What's the desire within kids to learn about finance and numbers? They already think maths is difficult when it shouldn't be. So the desire is low. What's the knowledge? Well, the people who are teaching this have probably got consumer debt themselves. They probably make bad financial decisions themselves. They don't understand how their mortgage works. They can't balance their checkbook. They don't even know what a checkbook is these days. And these are the guys who are supposed to be role models for the children. So if you don't understand it yourself, how can you be a role model? How can you teach it for someone else? Uh, environment, yeah. What, what are they surrounded with? What do they see at home? What do mum and dad do? Mum and dad are terrible with money too. So everyone is terrible with money. So it's more of a, it's more of a culture thing, I think. And the action, well... Yeah, without getting the first four sorted, any action you take is going to be flawed because the structure just isn't there to support. Yeah, they don't bring millionaires, multimillionaires into schools and get kids fired up and say, hey, kids, you could be rich. You could drive a brilliant car. You could have amazing holidays. Oh, you could have a fantastic life. And you got, listen, you've got to get your head around numbers. Okay. No, 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 no. They're not scary. They're not, no, it's really, really cool. It's really easy. If you listen to, as I mentioned him earlier, Jocko Willink, he wrote kids' books about discipline. And one of them was about financial freedom. And this sort of content really hit home with Martin. They loved listening to these and they were little seven minute stories. And at the end of the story was a little lesson about delayed gratification or compounding or you know, just knowing how numbers and how money works. And it was just really, really engaging with kids. And that for me is what's missing is the, the desire to really demonstrate how it can be done. Yeah. And, you know, schools are, are doing a good job of, of, of kind of what they're there for. You know, they're there to do a certain yeah. thing and they're doing that and we don't want to knock that. But as you say, when it comes to those financial lessons, they don't really exist. So how have you made those lessons fun and engaging? Because would you agree that it's important that it's got to be fun and oh, we can start looking at the age groups as well and start understanding how did you first begin to introduce these conversations and lessons about money to your children? When can you remember was there a first conversation that was had or? Oh, I think Jack in particular has always been very sort of money focused. He is very much, oh, I want to be rich. I want to have a load of money. I want to, have, yeah, we mentioned, so as he's 14 now, and we've had conversations about getting a job. He's not too keen on this idea of getting a job. He's like, no, I don't really fancy working for money. What I fancy doing is like buying and selling stuff or trading or just having a business or having a business where someone else does the work. I think he might've read too many of my books. That's the problem without realizing where I started, which was doing some work. Yeah, in terms of making it fun, I think for us, it's showing real life applications. So when Jack would come home and say to me, why has my friend got no money? You know, why do they live in a smaller house than us? Why do they drive this type of car? And I said, well, 
okay, it's possibly because of this decision they've made or that decision they've made or this principle. And getting them to understand, I mean, the main thing I, I absolutely loved, I mentioned earlier, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I've read that book eight times now. First time I read it was 23 years ago when I first started my business. The last time was with my children. And so every week we would sit down, we'd, I'd read a few pages, I'd close the book, and then I'd just sit back and we'd chat for about 20 minutes about what we just read. So what questions have we got? And the first question I really remember was, what do you mean I have to pay tax? All this money isn't mine. I do all the work and someone else gets a slice of the money. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, that's a very good point. And, um, you know, some of the, the other conversations I've had on the podcast over recent weeks, John, it's been interesting when we talked about pocket money. And yeah. did you manage to um, help them understand that, you know, what you're giving them actually isn't all of theirs? And, and did you do anything such as money jars or any <laughs> activities like that with them? Yeah, I like the idea. I think it was it was Bill Murray, wasn't wasn't it? That said, if you want to teach your kids about tax, uh, just eat thirty percent of their ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I could have tried that, but I think yeah, some of the things we tried, they had a like Go Henry account, right? So you get your base level income. Beyond that, if you want to do some chores, there's some opportunities to earn yourself some more money. One of the things I did do, I'm not completely convinced it worked, but I wanted to study delayed gratification, the old marshmallow test. So I gave my kids, both of them, a £5 note. And I said, right, I want, I want a photo of you with this £5 note. So I, I checked the serial number. I don't trust my kids. <laughs> and I said to them, if in three months' time, you hand me back that £5 note, I'll swap it for a £20 note. And sure enough, they both handed it back. But I'm not convinced it worked because they both just like filed it away and like, well, that's going to be 20 pounds in three months time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, it's, in- it's always interesting to find out about that. And obviously they're seeing you, John, with, you know, your social media presence, with uh, your podcasting, your masterminds, your books. Yeah. That surely is rubbing off on them, right? And, uh, you know, in what ways, other than what we've already discussed, you know, are they showing an interest to follow now in, in sort of your entrepreneurial footsteps? Oh, they are, definitely. Harry's got a wonderful business plan. So I so say she's 11 years old. Uh, she's already written two books, by the way. We've not published or anything, but you know they, they have been written. And she's got a business model that she is going to own a nail salon when she's older. So you better go in and get your nails done. She will also cut your hair at the same time. Uh, there will also be a bakery attached. So you can eat a cupcake whilst getting your hair cut. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that's a good idea. I think hair in, in the muffins, but we'll let her go on. And it's also going to be a dog grooming salon. So it's a bit of a jack of all trades. She hasn't learned about my laser focus yet. But one thing she has learned, she said, I'm not going to work Saturdays. She said, they'll be open Saturdays, but I won't be working in there. The staff will be working. <laughs> like, this is a little 11-year-old girl who's like, right, so I'm going, to, I'm going to own the business. Someone else is going to do the work. I'm going to be, I'm going to be spending time with my family on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. No, it's brilliant. And and that's one of the beauties, isn't it? Is, uh, you know, not being held back by life experiences at that young age and yeah. being able to dream big. And yeah, I, remember um, my, I remember my ne- niece and nephew going to school and having the careers talk and then just saying, oh, I'm going to work in a shop or something. Oh, ambition. Come on, get some drive, get some ambition. Think bigger than that. And that was all they could see for themselves because that was what they were told the careers teacher. I mean, by the way, don't ever take advice from a careers teacher 
because a careers teacher thought that becoming a careers teacher was a good career path. (laughs) (laughs) So let's take it back to your own childhood, John. You know, you're obviously a very successful man now. Where did that come from? Um, Was there an influence looking back now? Was there a financial, you know, role model that you had in your younger life? I think within reason. My dad was an electrician. My mum worked in a sewing factory. So there was not a lot of money when I was growing up. I probably heard the word, if I had a pound for every time I heard the word, money doesn't grow on trees, um, I would have enough for a very big money tree. But thinking about what my dad did, he worked very hard. And you know he would work away from home weeks on end, and he would earn very good money. He challenged himself. He took himself to the top of his career. He also, and I can kind of see myself in this now, was very investment focused. In that, he would he set up endowment policy. He made sure he had a pension. He was the first of his generation to really save and invest for the future and sacrifice a little bit now. And I think that that has stuck with me because. When I think about most of the financial success I've had, um, I was interviewed for uh, a newspaper article a couple of months back about ISA millionaires. And they said, how have you amassed this massive pot in your ISA? And I said, well, it's quite simple, really. I started 30 years ago. And when I got my first job, my dad said to me, "Invest, save or invest 20% of your income. Right, dad, I'll do that. So I started off, I was on £29.50 a week, YTS. So, yeah, what's that? £25 a month. I was squirreling aside. When I went up to ten grand a year, I'm squirreling away two grand a year. When I went up to twenty-five grand a year, I'm putting five grand a year away. And I've just kept that going over 30 years. And so that one lesson, and it it wasn't something he necessarily did because he started too late. And I think a lot of parents are often keen to help their children avoid the mistakes they made. And I think when my dad started investing probably in his 40s, with staring down retirement, thinking there's not going to be enough money, he was very keen to say to me, start when you're 16. The minute you get a job, just save 20% and just keep it going. And now I'm passing that on to my two. So the, you know, the first thing I said to Jack is the minute you do get a job, if you get a job, I know you don't want to, but the minute you do get a job, 20%, just squirrel it away. You won't even miss it because you've never had it. Yeah. Wow. Um, great that you took that advice. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and there are obviously lots of products around now for children. You mentioned the Go Henry, which is kind of like a debit card for, for children. That's like a prepaid it? debit card, yeah. Have you looked at any other investments account or, or pensions or anything like that for the children? Yeah, I started yeah. looking at junior ISAs. Uh, I'm very keen to encourage them to trade. You know, I'm, I'm very much a stocks and shares guy. So for me, I would love for them to have a junior ISA. I mean, they've got a junior ISA, but it's just it's safe as houses one, probably getting three and a half percent on it at the moment. So, you know, after inflation, it's a lovely money eroding um, tool, but I would love for them to learn to trade, even if that means that they lose money, because I think you learn more from trading and losing money than you do from winning. I'm keen for them to make their own mistakes. I don't want to give them everything on a plate. I want them to be able to fail, be able to make some mistakes and then Again, like we did with Rich Dad, Poor Dad, go and play, go and find out what works, what doesn't, and then let's discuss it. Let's discuss why that didn't work, why you lost all your money. Did you get too greedy there? Did you go all in on a stock that you shouldn't have done? Are you not playing the long game? Are you not compounding? Are you overly leveraged? You know, all the things that we've started to talk about, and we start talking about them in a very childlike fashion that they will understand, 
until we get to the point whereby we can have an adult conversation with them around finance, money, investments. And I guess the final piece is looking at the legacy aspect. So everything that you're building now in your life, John, obviously will be passed on at some stage to them. And, you know, have you already started to think about that? Or is that still a, a bit too far in the future? I think it is. I would like to think it's too far in the future. I plan on living to 123. I'm 46 this month. I've got just under 80 years left, I hope. It is interesting because I read a lot of investments and you often see letters from investors, letters from readers in these magazines. And the amount of people that are in their 50s and 60s and they're petrified about inheritance tax and everything is, how do I avoid inheritance tax? I'm still in accumulation mode. I'm still growing. Inheritance tax, oh, that's a future me problem. Yes, I've got structures in place to protect the bulk of my assets from inheritance tax, but it's not my main focus. But everything you're doing, John, by the sounds of it, you and Sarah is preparing your children to be equipped with the understanding and the knowledge. So when that time comes, they will be able to maintain that wealth that you've built and worked hard to build and hopefully pass that on for many generations to come as well. Oh, exactly. Because otherwise, if they if they don't learn the financial psychology, financial mindset to be able to cope with large sums of money, giving them a large sum of money is going to be the worst thing possible. Absolutely. Yes. So um, it's been uh, you know, a delight speaking with you again today, John, and really appreciate everything that you've shared with us and some of the insights as to how you're making these conversations fun and, and also around homeschooling, which is uh, a massive movement, isn't it? And I suppose, you know, having gone through that process, you know just how big this is in the UK. It is. And I think we, we were very surprised when we first investigated it. We thought, oh, it's going to be a very, very tiny minority. It's about one in 10 children in the UK is currently home educated and growing. And particularly, it's a problem with kids with needs. Most of the kids that are in the home education sector are home educated because the school is failing, because they have some kind of special educational need that isn't being met by the school, either because they haven't got the resources in place, they haven't got the time, they haven't got the inclination, or it's quite often the case with schools, they haven't got the money. My wife is actually writing her first book at the moment, exactly about how the school system is failing kids with needs. So uh, yeah, that will be hopefully coming out in 2024. Well, well, we'll have to have Sarah on the podcast then when uh, that's All right. Well, John, thanks again today. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. uh, Thank you for having me back again. Okay. John has always got lots to pack into his conversations. I enjoyed that one again with John today. Before we unpack that, Kevin, let's head to Trustpilot. And uh, we've had lots of reviews in the last week. We uh, recently did a end of year wrap up for our members and they were sharing some fantastic stories, weren't they, Kevin, of some of the achievements this year? They were. And you get an incredible insight into what some people are doing. And in fact, I had an email exchange today with one of our members, Kamal, who, if you recall, on the interaction with our members was talking about talking about different ways that you can generate an income stream from the different pillars. And uh, one of the most difficult pillars to generate an income stream from is the one we call home capacity, which is generating value from what's inside your home and what's outside of your home and around the space. And she talked, and I thought it was fascinating, that it's got a very nice drive, and you know she'll give us all the details of that. But the point being is she earned 
more than 1,300 pounds from just letting other people park during whatever's appropriate on, on the drive. And I thought, what a fascinating way just to make 100 pounds a month, you know, which is adding to your wealth if you keep doing that or adding to your income. I think just a great way. And there are just so many different stories that, that came out and people hitting security now and people hitting financial independence as well. So, um, and of course, that milestone, Chris, and I want to stress this, if I may, that the milestone of security is so critical on the wealth building journey because as soon as you get to a place where the recurring income from the ownership of assets, not the doing of things, but the ownership of things, and you get that to a place where you can live that lockdown lifestyle or a lifestyle where your basic essentials are covered. Once you achieve that, then you're free to choose the work you do. And more often than not, we see that our members stop trading time for money. And then all of the time that they were using to trade time is now focused on creating more streams of income, almost using the mantra that we often use in wealth builders, which is focus your way to security, diversify your way to wealth. And that rich diversification comes from having more time to put more leverage of time into that equation. Absolutely. And another of our members who joined us on that end of year wrap up was one of our family founder members, Leah, who uh, has left us a review saying in the summer of 2023, I came across the Wealth Talk podcast. And from the very first listen, Christian and Kevin's insights made my daily commute an invaluable part of my day. This led me to joining Wealth Builders families in October, and the webinars enriched by informative guest speakers have broadened my financial knowledge, fostering a strong sense of community where I've already made valuable connections. And embarking on the journey towards financial freedom is both exciting and empowering, and I eagerly anticipate what 2024 holds. If you're seeking to build wealth and connect with like-minded individuals, I wholeheartedly recommend joining the Wealth Builders community. It's been a transformative experience, and I can't wait to continue this rewarding journey. How elegantly and eloquently said by Leah, which made me actually think about uh, what John was saying, you know, which is when he was at school, kind of saying that he didn't enjoy it so much and thought, right, I finished school. That's me. My learning's done. But you become a lifelong learner, don't you? And that's, that's that's an interesting point. So wealth building is all about that. And fascinating as well, he shared. He's written four books, but doesn't want to focus on providing the English side of that education, preferring to pass it on to his wife, who is a trained teacher. The reason it made me laugh was I remember listening to an interview with Robert Kiyosaki about his books, best-selling books, obviously. And he said, I'm not a best writing author. I'm a best-selling author. And that's what it counts, isn't it? Yeah. Using your IP to create real value, which he's doing. And I think it's great that he's putting time, energy into the, the raising together with his wife of their children, uh, recognising the school system, as he said, you know, just wasn't serving them at the right level. That I think he, he said, when there are large classroom sizes, you tend to go at the slowest speed. And if you've got you know, children who need something specific, whether it's partially sightedness or, or indeed in many cases now, 
with you know any other form of condition that just prevents you from learning at the same pace or in the same way and style as other children, then that's going to cause them to slow down. So and not enjoy the experience as well, which can be damaging. So, um, you know, fair play to John for what he's doing. Yeah. And it's all wrapped up in our seven family wealth principles, aren't they? The first principle is problems and identifying a multitude of problems that exist when it comes to children and young adults learning and specifically learning about money and finances. But interesting, John talked about his wife, 25 years as a teacher, and they found their roles, didn't they? So she obviously took care of the core curriculum with the children when it came to the home education. And then John would get out his copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, you know, really look at some business lessons and discuss those with the children. And that was really a form of personal development. And it clearly is rubbing off because he talked about Harry, his daughter there. She's 11 years old. She's already got a business plan. She wants to do multiple things. So it's clearly rubbing off. And that participation of sitting together and also the book of the family values and uh, picking a value. And uh, again, these things really sticking and uh, becoming part of their DNA now. Yeah, didn't we hear that very similarly when um, one of the podcast interviews was talking about laminating a set of uh, personal family values? That was a fascinating insight there as well. So, so this whole idea of family values being important and carrying that forward so in one of the principles, which is the one of passing on, Chris, which is really passing on the baton, it's almost seeing the wealth of a family as an intergenerational, not a race, but almost a, a marathon where the baton passes after the end of the, the generation, I guess, to, to one to the next to the next. And you have to equip them with the right knowledge, the skills, the training, in order to be able to accept that. And I think it's very powerful when you can start to build family values, family traditions, even recording some of the elder generation, the grandparents, the elder, the elders in the family right now, and get the younger people to record their voices and record some of the stories. Because history tells us valuable lessons, and it's quite fascinating. As we mentioned earlier, the more you get into what makes a family real, what makes them very deeply personal, the more insights you get and the more compelling the stories are. And one lesson I'm sure John is pleased that he took from his father was that early lesson of save or invest 20% of everything that you earn. And John has done that diligently and has built up a considerable nest egg. And uh, he talked about an ISA there, which is obviously a really efficient way of, uh, of putting money away and compounding another core principle of, uh, of the wealth building process. Yes, compounding is an important part of that. And the longer you have for that to take effect and you know, the, the more powerful it is, hence the earlier you can get children to learn that, the better it is. Whether people in today's world can save 20% anymore is a, an interesting one, at least because of you know high inflation, high interest rates, cost of living and so on. It's going to be difficult to do that. But always nice to see, though, that children are being encouraged to save so that they see the value. I think we've also heard from someone who actually paid money into the jars and the money that was in the saving jar, they topped up with interest to encourage them to see the earning of compound interest. So interest is definitely valuable and is one that compounds. The stock market does compound over time as long as you're banking some of the value I think all too often, though, 
people just ebb with the rise and fall of the, the market and don't bank and collect. I think I talked about this on a previous podcast that compounding is only really going to work at maximum impact if you collect the gains you make and then you, you use them to make more gains rather than just roll the dice on the next turn of the volatile stock market. Yeah. And uh, of course, always different, I guess, approaches to similar principles. John referred to the marshmallow test, which is essentially delayed gratification, giving his children five pounds and seeing how long they can hold on to that. And uh, if they do return it, they would get some interest and a return on their money. And Go Henry is a product. We've talked about this before. I'm sure listeners will be aware of Go Henry, the founder of Go Henry is Louise Hill. And Louise has recently put together a petition, Kevin, which I know we are firmly behind. And in Leah's review on Trustpilot, she hashtagged literacy for legacy, which is the hashtag that we're supporting around the petition. Yes. So the petition is a very valuable thing because it highlights the sense of a, of a public movement, really. So Louise, the founder of Go Henry, has put together the principle of the petition, which is to get financial literacy put as a, a curriculum, you know, a curriculum item, uh, an obligation to provide financial education to our younger people starting at primary school. And I think John even mentioned, you know, change the curriculum it was a bit of language he used. And this is what Louise is saying too. Let's change the curriculum and put it on the map. We're backing that. So their hashtag is make money count. And we've added our own because we believe in the value of literacy. And the value of that for us is that equips the next generation with the skills to be able to not just make good decisions with their own money, but to accept the family's wealth with all the wisdom that's needed to maintain it, expand it, and pass it on to future generations. So it's a continual intergenerational thing. So we'd like to, to support that and encourage any listener to go ahead and if they believe that's important, to sign up to the petition. And, and if the petition levels, uh, which I think closes in April 2024, Chris, if the petition levels hit 10,000, then it has to be acknowledged in terms of government rather. And if it hits 100,000, then it really stands every chance of being debated uh, you can imagine the big, almost a, not like legal signatures anymore because everything's done online, but the equivalent of that arriving outside number 10 and somebody having to take it in and then it's debated. So we'd like to get it to 100,000. It's currently, as we're speaking, around the sort of 9,000 mark. So 10,000 is a done deal, but we'd like to encourage people to uh, help and share because by helping, you're adding your name to it if you believe it's important. But if you share it with somebody else, then this thing can go viral. So if you could do that, that would be a Christmas gift and a half to give, wouldn't it? To leave not just a lasting legacy, but a lasting impression on the whole of society as property and other assets and entrepreneurialism and other things are being taught in schools. Now, we can argue, Chris, whether current educational system has taught the teachers how. But it's the same with EdTech, isn't it? And AI, they're going to have to develop those skills. So I think we would like to be part of that process that helps the educators become educated in these principles. But anyway, off the soapbox, I now do 
jump down. Uh, how do people um, sign up to this uh, petition, Chris? What's the what's the link? Yes, I will put the link in the show notes so that uh, you can easily click that. If you want to search online financial literacy petition, that should come up. And yeah, it'll be in the show notes along with other links that have been referred to in today's episode. And of course, links to join our Facebook community or to just receive free information. Every Wednesday, we publish our Wealth Builder Wednesday newsletter, and that's got all the latest news and events and interesting things that you can participate in. So that pretty much wraps up this year's episodes. And uh, I'll just say thank you to John for today. Very much appreciate taking the time to talk with us. And Kevin, I guess we'll be back same time, same place next year. Yeah, we will. And until when, uh, Monday, when we're meeting to have a very nice steak dinner somewhere in London. See you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget that we are constantly updating our resources inside the Wealth Builders membership site to help you create, build and protect your wealth. Head over to wealthbuilders.co.uk slash membership right now for free access. That's wealthbuilders.co.uk slash membership.